Hello there. Welcome to another delightful edition of the Boozy Muses podcast. Tonight, we are talking about fakes, forgeries, fraudulent art pieces, and probably some felonies. Sharing my hosting duties are Morgan temporarily a dog mom Smith and Sarah going to steal her parents' dog, Hickson. As always, I'm Sarah. You can hear my dogs in the background of every episode, Gobel. We're shaking up the format again tonight because why let our readers be comfortable? Instead of me talking the entire episode, Morgan and Sarah H. have researched an example of fakery. So we are going to each take a turn talking about forgery. Sarah, do you want to go first? Tonight, I'm going to be talking about Wolfgang Beltraki. He is an artist and forger, probably one of the most prolific of at least like this century, which hasn't been very long, that's to say something. (laughs) Um, But he has a lot of like publications and stuff about him already, which I'll get into in a little bit. He was born Wolfgang Fischer in 1951 in Westphalia, Germany, which set my AP Euro brain off with the um, Treaty of Westphalia. 1648 strolled into my head. Uh, his father was an art restorer, uh, which serves him as an art forger rather well because he knows his materials and supports and things like that. But when he married uh, his wife Helene in 1933, he took her last name. But the uh-huh. two, like a match, like a match made in heaven, the two of them uh, were found guilty of forging 14 works. <laughs> in 2011 and their sales those 14 works have a combined total of 45 million dollars in sale <laughs> yeah yeah how much are so we mostly make focused it? on how much i don't know at least in, that wasn't that wasn't in my wikipedia article unfortunately <laughs> at least I learned a few about million. in my yeah it's got to be something um I I learned about him in an art history class and I can't remember a whole lot more than the fact that he was really good at forging a lot of different artists which normally with forgeries you'll have like one artist um or forger who practices and gets like one or two artists that are really similar in style like down pat but the fact that he had there's at least like five or six different frequently mentioned in this wikipedia article which is a little weird. Go Wolfgang, I guess. like an overachieving criminal. Like, I see your one forgery and raise you four. Mm -hmm. Goody, goody. Yeah. But he mostly focused on modern art. So there's a lot of cubism, a lot of fauvism. There's some data thrown in there because a little sprinkle of data. I don't know Um, what any of that is. It's it's fine. Um... (laughs) So I took um, one semester of art, no, two semesters of art history. So I am following what you're saying. A lot of, a lot of early 1900s, 1920s, 30s, weird, like we're going to completely throw everything that we've been taught out the window and just make some weird shit. Yeah. It's pretty much like all of the trippy stuff. So like what, like Salvador Dali was surrealism, right? And then like Picasso did a lot of cubism, yeah. So these are just like the only art history names. The big, that are, right. <laughs> the big so ones. In, 
there there are a couple that are mentioned in this Wikipedia article that I have not heard of before. Doesn't mean they're not important, just doesn't mean that they were included in a lot of survey courses that are being taught in America on European art. But the the forgery business, um, his conviction in 2011 um, earned him a six-year sentence and earned Helene a four-year sentence. Um, but they were both released in 2015, so he only served like half of his sentence. Good behavior, I guess. I don't know. Um, I mean, it's it's white elders. collar, yeah, it's white collar criminals being like yeah. let out because they're probably like, oh, well, you're. In, I mean, this happens even for. I do not need to go on a rant on the justice system. I do this too often, but yes, white, right, <laughs> yeah. Although he was only found guilty of forging 14 pieces, the police have identified 58 paintings they believe to have been forged by Beltraki. He's claimed to have forged hundreds of pieces by over 50 artists. So it could just be an ego thing, or it could be like, the man is an overachiever. I, I, I don't know. But he now makes millions off of his own original paintings because he was an artist beforehand. And because he has been featured in a 60 Minutes interview, there's a documentary about him that I'm pretty sure is still available to view on Netflix. He and his wife each wrote a book. So there are two books. And there's another book about him by some journalists. So he has a ton of publications and is now making millions off his own work because he forged other people's. I was going to say, I feel like this was just his business model from the get-go. It was, it was a PR and, scheme. Yeah, and it, and that is probably scheme. why, like, he wasn't just like, oh, one forger. It's like, how can I become as sensational as possible? Let me become good at forging multiple artists. I'll go to jail for a little while. No big deal. I'll make a name for myself profit like well, there's a whiteboard somewhere that has just all this steps written out and he's just sitting string. they're yeah. string tied around <laughs> it's that scene from always sunny in philadelphia with charlie trying to find out who pepe silio is that was his plan what country did he go to jail in germany ah that's not that bad yeah and now his wife and and him they live um along a lake in Switzerland, I think. So it's like very picturesque is <laughs> the vision I'm getting. If you go to this. jail in the European Union, like the original European Union, you're going to be fine. Yeah, that's great. But I have a couple of stories that I found yes. in said um, Wikipedia article. Um, oh, so a little tidbit to add before I go into that. He and quote his associates um, use story of their grandparents being art collectors as the provenance for like all of these that they that they forged. The people existed, so there were records of the people, but they were not art collectors. So I mean, I guess that's one way to cover your tracks. But I have multiple pages because I wrote it all down. Margaret, you got to say something. Well, I'm just I don't know. Like on the one hand, I want to be like, how did you get away with that? But on the other hand. And I mean, I don't know, I guess it depends on the place that you're, that you're selling these things to, but provenance is, it's, I don't think it's always taken as seriously as it needs to be taken. So it's, it's like surprising that that was able to work as an excuse for so long, but at the same time, it's not because it just, I don't know. 
it's just yeah. disappointing. <laughs> well, I have I have a couple of stories that go through like who sold what to whom. In 2004, Baltakia and quote his associates sold a fake Max Ernst for 2.3 million dollars. The gallery lent it to the Max Ernst Museum for a 2006 exhibition. It was sold to another collector after that for seven million dollars. It's one of the five Ernst paintings that he was convicted of forging. So that sucks. <laughs> That's one. Two, another painting in 2004 was sold to Steve Martin, the wonderful comedian <laughs> Steve Martin, um, through a Parisian gallery for 700,000 euro. Comedian, but not art expert, apparently. Is, yeah. Um, Did your time on Pink was... Panther teach you nothing? <laughs> what are your investigative skills? Good Lord. <laughs> Um, but the painting was supposedly by an uh, Heinrich Kampenduck in 1915. That is the only, like, that's the only name that I have. A lot of these are like Parisian gallery or like this other thing because they're all in French or German and I took Spanish and Italian. So I don't know how to pronounce them and I don't want to do the disservice of mispronouncing them. You 100% try to pronounce it and I just give it like a 75% effort and then apologize. <laughs> it's, it's, we're, we're trying so here's one about your question of who who sold it through what in 2006 martin sold it through christie's for 500,000 pounds it's another work that he has now been convicted of forging as if these two stories have not been enough here's another doozy because this goes on to the second page november of 2006 these are all happening within like four years of each other a a painting that was supposed to also be by Camp and Doc. It was 1914. Um, was sold to a Maltese company, Trusteco, for 2.88 million euro. An auction company or house in Cologne was used for the sale. And I specifically point this out because it gets a little tricky. In 2008, finally using scientific evidence to analysis for, for analysis, um, scientists found that the gallery labels on the back of the painting were faked and the paint that was used contained titanium white, which wasn't available in 1914. So it was too modern of a medium. Um, so Trasteco, which is the company that it was that bought it um, in 2006, sued the auction company in Cologne. However, the original conviction or the original de um, determination was that the auction house would have to pay. So they appealed in 2012. Two months later, the case was settled. Finally, after the appeal, after some of Balchaki's estate had been sold, this little part of the estate came to about 2 million euro. The money was then sent to the auction house in Cologne, allowing them to reimburse Tristeco. It's 800,000 pounds for sales commission. This is the only, no, this is the first case that Bill Trekkie has ever had with refunding a buyer at all. Well, that makes sense to me because, and I may be like completely making this up, but isn't there like some sort of, I don't know, I'm just going to say rule because I don't know how strict it is, but like once it's exchanged hands, like a gallery and they resell it they're the ones that are 
responsible for whether or not it was real at that point like once it's exchanged hands isn't that a thing because like isn't the burden of proof on the selling entity so like this guy forged it sold it to the gallery the gallery is like all right cool this is real but then when they sell it to someone else isn't it then their responsibility I think it's different for auction houses and galleries because auction houses are technically just hosting the sale on behalf of the seller where galleries themselves are purchasing it okay and so and and this was a case of an auction house okay that yeah so I think at, at, at that point it would almost be like somewhat like a third party did like a certificate of authenticity and then they were like cool you're a trusted source so then we can go ahead and sell this because there have been, there were other instances that said that right before it went to auction, there were questions about whether or not it was authentic. Like somebody had like questions about it. And so they pulled it for more research. So I guess it would have to be depending on if you just let it go or if there's like an ethical reason why you feel like it shouldn't continue through through auction and that at that point that could be like the the divide between whether or not it's the auction house it's his fault wait so do you know where oh you said wolfgang they live in like a nice house in switzerland now so they're just like straight up chilling chilling with all their millions now you know what i mean good for them like you have to admire the hustle because you know that that took a lot of time a lot mm-hmm. of supplies uh, paint is not cheap it is not antique supports are not cheap and it's right? not like okay it's not a victimless crime but I don't think any of the victims have gone into bankruptcy by being victimized like Steve Martin is doing okay well, that's the thing too. Like, no, it's not technically a victimless crime, but also it's like, I mean, would anybody feel bad if Jeff Bezos spent a billion dollars on something that was fake? Like no one would care because you know that they have more where that comes from. So if you're dropping $7 million on a painting and it turns out to be fake, like I'm sure you're doing fine because you spent $7 million on a painting boohoo but also wouldn't it be a really cool conversation point to be like yeah so I bought this for seven million dollars but it ended up being a forgery by that guy on like the documentary you watch on Netflix like oh, that's yeah. cool this is a really good segue into my story segue look at us look at- go unplanned <laughs> no it was planned listeners we this is a very choreographed podcast. Uh, and yeah, <laughs> I couldn't think of anything to say. And I planned that. Am I, am I really good to go? This is the story of the great rooster chair. So in 1970, the Henry Ford Museum, which is located in Dearborn, Michigan, purchased a rare 17th century armchair known as the Brewster chair. So a little bit of background knowledge here that I got from Wikipedia, shout out to 
uh, Wikipedia. Um, a Brewster this chair. This episode not officially sponsored by <laughs> Wikipedia. Well, because we all know that half the things that you read on Wikipedia can be fake. I, I got, I have more sources than just Wikipedia. Anyways, so a Brewster chair is a turned style or a spinder, spindle style chair made in the mid 17th century in New England. So this is like pilgrim times. Um, we're gonna get into that. So the chair uh, got its name from a man named William Brewster. He was an Englishman born in like circa 1568, who really knows, um, in Scrooby, Nottinghamshire, which I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, sorry, Alex's Nana. And he was one of the passengers on the Mayflower in 1620. So I'm not entirely sure why the name, why the chair was named after him specifically. The only thing that I can really think of is that because when the colonizers eventually made their way to Plymouth, Brewster was like made a senior elder and he served as a religious leader for the colony. So he would have been like of high importance for the pilgrims to name their handiwork after. Um, there's also claims that chairs weren't frequently found in Plymouth. I, I don't know. Um, but that these chairs would be made like extra fancy and special as sort of like thrones for Brewster to sit on since he would have been like a really revered individual. So it's like the Brewster chair for Mr. Brewster. Can we just take a break to talk about how you just seamlessly called them colonizers without making a big deal about it and then moved on i i mean i i wrote it into the script because that's what they were damn it a plus yeah <laughs> please continue if they were colonies it means they were colonizers if you're upset about this thought process don't nope. email us we don't care pick up gonna come, a dictionary it's going to come to me and i have a masters in indigenous studies so it's <laughs> not it's not going to get answered not sorry i mean i felt like that was the best way to state that these were not good people without me going on a huge long diatribe about all of the shitty stuff that you know they did so anyway they were seeking religious freedom and then they <laughs> slaughtered the indigenous peoples Thank yeah, you. We have, Next. We don't have time to unpack all of that. You're all night. <laughs> Moving on. Um, We're talking about chairs here, Sarah. <laughs> it's never just about chairs, Morgan. No, it truly hey. is never about just about chairs. I was on education. We can facilitate any conversation about anything. <laughs> okay. So the Henry Ford acquired one of these chairs in 1970 from a New Hampshire antique dealer for $9,000, which in today's money is roughly $64,000 for one of these chairs. Um, and at the time, there were only two other chairs, Brewster chairs, known to exist, which kind of sounds like it would be a red flag, but... Um, it really wasn't unreasonable that there would only be that there would be more so the two chairs that existed one was held at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York and then the other one is in Pilgrim Hall in Plymouth Massachusetts 
But the man, Wallace Nutting, who reportedly discovered the Brewster chair that is at the Met, wrote a book in 1928 called Furniture Treasury. I guess he was like a really renowned furniture guy. I don't know. Um, But he asserted in this book that there were likely a handful of other Brewster chairs in existence. So when the Henry Ford Museum purchased this chair, they thought that they were getting one of the other chairs that still existed. Um, So because the chairs were so rare, this was like a huge find for the Henry Ford Museum and they did lots of publications on it. It was on the cover of like one of their magazines. It was got a lot of publicity and all of this. Um, However, seven years later in 1977, it was revealed that, drum roll, I don't know if you can hear that, uh, it's fake. So um, the totally unsubstantiated origin story for this fake that duped experts for almost a decade is that a man named Armand La Montagne, which I am not saying that last name for the rest of this, we're just going to call him Armand. <laughs> um, okay. So So uh, reportedly Armand and his friend were in a museum in Hartford, Connecticut, and they were- The Gilmore Girls. Yes, home of, um, what is Starry Hollow? Stars Hollow. Anyways, so uh, he and his friend were in a museum in Hartford, Connecticut, and they were overheard criticizing the repair work that had been done on some of the historic furniture in the museum, and they were asked to leave. Um, <laughs> so I mean it sounds like that I, I don't know how they should have hired them yeah well, made them leave I mean, well okay so this would have been like 1968 oh, so could you okay. imagine like someone being in the museum and like you're a docent and you overhear someone being like check out the spindles on that train wreck yes like, I can't imagine that yeah they'd probably be asked to leave but I I call this unsubstantiated because I don't know if this is true. Um, there's some articles that say Armand was an ex an ex policeman. Um, some say he was a sculptor. Some say he was a woodworker and a craftsman. So this man like either had seven different lives in one, or there's like some conflicting stories. And I only heard this origin story in one article that I read. So we kind of have to take that story with a grain of salt. Um, one way or the other, Armand decided that he was just going to F some shit up. So throughout God 19... Bless. <laughs> I like mean, you, do. you just gotta, you gotta respect the drip, honestly. So throughout 1969, Armand set to work creating a Brewster chair. He went to great lengths to make the chair as authentic as possible. So he used wood while it was still green, which caused it to warp as it dried. Mm. He, yeah, he gouged spots in the wood to create wear patterns. Um, He covered it in glue and then used a vacuum to blow dust onto it to create like multiple layers of dust and dirt on the outside of the chair and then like polished it and brushed it to move it where he wanted it to be. Um, my personal favorite, he suspended the chair over a home constructed smoker <laughs> to basically just like 
cook the wood and make it appear aged. Did he make ribs at the same time? <laughs> I don't even know, but I'm just like, you have to admire the link. Like, this is some next level petty. And I love that for him. <laughs> so, um, but at the same time, he didn't strive to make the chair perfect. He made little tweaks in the design that would have been like completely normal for a craftsman in the 17th century to do, but it wouldn't be likely to happen if it were a fake because forgers are usually trying to make like exact copies or something that doesn't draw attention. But in him kind of like making these tiny mistakes and tiny tweaks, it kind of lended itself to the idea of this being authentic. When he was done, uh, rather than sell the chair to an antique dealer, Armand decided that he would place the chair in the home of one of his friends who sometimes sold to dealers. He basically just said, all right, buddy, here's this chair. Let's see what happens. Hey, okay, but if I just picture this, Morgan, if I like pulled you into my basement and I had like a chair smoker set up, and was like, I've been working on this for two years. Will you just help me see where it goes? I would 100% be down. I'd be like, yes, bring it into my home immediately. I want to know what happens. Can we, can we go back to if I bring you into my basement and there's a smoker? You can't smoke it in the yard because the neighbors will see. Okay, but no, we're going to get to this. Armand never was, he, he was straight up honest about the fact that it was fake. Like he would tell anybody, yes, I, this is my, guys, when you, Sarah, you have no idea. When you message us and we're like, hey, do you guys want to do a story for this? I was like, you know what? I talk about the Brewster chair too much. I'm going to try to find something else. But it Wait. just, it, it pulls me like a magnet. So I love this story. If he told everyone it was fake, can he be charged with a crime? I don't know. I don't think that he ever got charged with anything. So like, spoiler alert on that one. But it, it gets better. Like, believe it or not, it gets There's better. There's already been a chair smoker. <laughs> I know. Okay, continue. So basically, he's just waiting to see what happens like he doesn't really at this point I don't think that he's really like actively being like yeah it's fake he just kind of like places it there quietly and is like let's let's see what this does um and basically just like waits for someone to take the bait and they did so the whole time the chair was like moving its way through the market and making its way to the Henry Ford Museum because basically, you know, a dealer came to this guy's house, bought it. I think it might have bounced around in between dealers and then like kind of sat on the market for a while before the Henry Ford Museum picked it up. This whole time, Armand was not shy about what he'd done. So he would basically like tell anyone who would listen that the chair was fake and he knew that it was fake because he made it. And by the time the rumors had spread to the museum, they just outright refused to believe that it was fake because they'd had so many experts examine the chair. And so many of these experts have been like, yes, it's real. And I think also probably because they were really excited to have it. They're like, who's this friggin' 
policeman sculptor woods craftsman coming out Barbecuer. of the woodwork <laughs> barbecuer <laughs> coming out of the woodwork to tell us our chair is fake so basically these rumors floated around for literally years and then um in 1977 there was an article written by the providence journal that detailed armand's entire process of how the chair was made and it shared what the main tell of the chair was which was the fact that he used a modern drill bit so this man built a wooden smoker but purposefully used a modern drill bit when making this chair to leave one flaw that could prove it was fake the man is my hero okay this leads to the museum um x-raying the chair and lo and behold they discover that it was in fact fake <laughs> what would have given it away besides the man it originated with being like hey I made it here's how I did it love to imagine like if he hadn't put like one good tell in it because he like legitimately was just telling like as soon as it was picked up from a dealer he was like Haha, you fell for it it's fake and everyone was like no way man like you wish you could make a chair like the pilgrims did can we just talk about how the poor, like, was well, not poor, but the acquisition staff at the Henry Ford Museum was just increasingly drunk at work? They found a really important chair, Sarah. Don't take that from them. Throughout the years, Armand maintained that he never made one cent off of the chair and that he did it, quote, for a good laugh. <laughs> He also said those people, meaning antiques experts and museum officials, think they're infallible. Anyways, he also called um, antiques experts and museum officials snooty. So this kind of does we give are. a little, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> this does kind of give credence to that story that maybe he and his friend did get kicked out. And he was just like, I'm going to show that guy in particular. <laughs> Morgan. He has he has a Wikipedia page. I'm sorry. This he, just in folks. Does it have date of perishing? Oh my god, it's him. No, he's still alive. Can he's, we send this to him? He's 82 years old. Yeah. Damn it. Let's find contact I, information. How did I not find this? He's a sculptor Dude. to the sports stars. Oh my god, I guys. It's currently unavailable, but Amazon had a DVD that you could buy called Splendid Splinters, the Armand La Montagne story. The inspiring story of the man who takes the chips off the shoulders of America's best. Ooh. Fight the man. Did he, get, did he get to name this himself? Because I love that. I like don't. Third level petty. I it's don't third level. know. I love him so much. Well, I like how both the forgers in this story have like turned out pretty okay and you support them rather than the museum people that they took in. <laughs> are we ready for the last story? We are ready. I really hope that we keep at least some portion of this in the podcast. Of course we are. <laughs> like... As I said previous to starting to film, uh, our hot mess, half of our charm. Okay. <laughs> So, so glad 
we go now to southern France to a town called Elin, which is how I'm going to say it. And so Elin is home to a little known water, watercolorist known as Etienne Toulouse. And I'm just going to call him Toulouse. And he lived from 1857 to 1922. And those dates are important. So bookmark them. And he was Aline's great home artist. They are a small town that had um, some of the greatest artists of the past come and paint there. And this was their, this was their guy. And so the town innocently opened a museum to feature their great hometown artist work. And things seemed to be going really well at first. But in 2018, the museum closed its doors to begin a renovation. So the local government had helped fund it in a way to, um, or with the goal of increasing tourism to the town. And so they closed it and they, in the meanwhile, were working on this big like reopening exhibition. So they brought in an art historian to help them with this opening exhibit. Eric Forcada apparently took just a little peek at their collection and was immediately very, very concerned because many, many works in the collections were not just fake, but pretty obvious fakes. The signature on one of the paintings wiped away with the gentlest touch when he touched it with a glove. Another one had a building that wasn't built on the seashore until 1955 but Truth died in 1922. And another was a modern copy of a historic postcard. So again, not just forgeries, but really obvious ones. Out of the museum's 140 paintings by their great hometown artists, 82 were fake. That's 60% of their okay. entire collection. Okay, that's not as bad fake. as I was thinking. <laughs> But they only have really a, bad. They only have 140 pieces of art. Yeah, it's still really bad. But if they were that wow. obviously fake, then I like assumed that all of them would be fake because it sounds like they don't know real art if you slapped them upside the head. That's like the thing that gets me about this is this was like the museum dedicated to this artist. Like it was his museum in his hometown. So you would think that they would be like the experts and they get a real art historian and then the art historian is immediately like, uh, it's a no from me dog. And like, how does he like break it to the curators or the like one staff member at this museum that was like, hey, uh, it's bad is real bad. Where they think that the issue really came from is apparently in 2014, the museum just went on like a massive spending spree and volunteers were just raising as much money as they possibly could to just buy, 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 buy. And so they were buying without checking. And so a lawyer representing the museum said the forgeries were just a massive job and that it was a huge conspiracy and that there was a spate of forgeries all across southern France and how are they to know I mean it did what the municipal government wanted it to it became more of a tourist attraction just for the art you failed successfully I feel so like the other museums and this episode I don't legitimately feel bad for 
But you know that this was a really small museum. He was probably trying their hardest and they just tried a little too hard. Yeah, well, and I guess my question would be like, how much money did they spend? A hundred and sixty thousand euros for their for For their for the fake ones okay not for the entire collection so they said that the watercolors his um works go for between ten thousand and a hundred thousand euros so they were buying more at the lower end of the spectrum okay and did they like were they buying from multiple different forgers and just not realizing so they were buying from a lot of different sources and apparently they it was just really obvious forgeries that the like people figured out that they were just going on this massive buying spree and just very lightly forged works you know they would take um a watercolor done around the same time period by a lesser known artist and it could have just been like you know a stay-at-home mom in France in the 1920s and took her watercolor, lightly touched it up to make it look like his work. They bought old canvases and just put modern watercolors on it. Like it was just, so like we, on one end we have the smoker, like the homemade chair smoker. And then on the other end, we have (laughs) these forgers, which are just like the minimum, minimum effort. Just like putting it out there and seeing yeah, what just, happens. <laughs> well, because if you spend five minutes just like throwing on a signature with a Sharpie, that's not that's not a lot of commitment if it doesn't work out. What did you say what year it was that they realized that everything was a that was fake? 2018. Oh my god. And and how many years had they been collecting for? Like the entirety of them being an institution? So the museum opened in the mid-1990s and they apparently purchased uh, 60 Taruses in mass when they came onto the market. Uh, so the 60 came on and they raised tens of thousands of dollars securing at least 30 of the works. And so they bought fakes at multiple time periods, but at least in one batch of 30. And they're called low cost fakes. Okay. I I don't know. I just feel like I want to feel bad for them, but the fact that they were so blatantly fake, I don't know if I can. See, this is why in graduate school, I was always on like the small museums need help. Small museums are left out of museum literature, like binge because things like this happen to poor small museums who are mostly volunteer run and don't know what they're doing, but gosh darn it, are they trying. But yeah, it's yeah, I feel it's I bad. feel less, less bad for them because yes, they are trying. Whereas an institution that is well endowed, rather large, <laughs> like got right. Shut up, Morgan. <laughs> like the Henry Ford Museum, or like God forbid, the Met. Right, bringing up the Met in conversations like this is kind of like how how did you how did you miss it? Because 
the Met being one of those big institutions, I don't think we've talked about the Met having a forgery, but like if it did happen, it being- Oh, they've got them. I'm, sh- I'm sure they do. But you have right. like this, this field like standard and the Met always seems to be at the top of that said standard, whether it's like leading the way with it or being one of one of the first institutions to do the thing that whatever we're talking about, like, I don't feel as bad for the Met as I would because it's like you have a longstanding tradition of excellence, quote unquote excellence. You, You have how much money is donated to you each year? How much do you charge? Um, how much do you charge for admission? How much experience do your people have? Like if your if your staff is filled with like PhD supposedly experts in the field, which is a load of BS, whatever. Um, it's almost like you're setting yourself up to get slapped because you're like, oh, we have the best of the best. Whereas a smaller institution that has its volunteers basically begging the community for money to come up with a collection that would make it substantial, I feel really bad for the small museum. Yeah, I mean, it's it was very much like a local, a local effort. I okay, I'm maybe I was We're not saying- harsh. Well, no, I will admit that maybe I'm too harsh because it, it. I will, I will say like that does make sense because for a larger institution, for them to be that bad, that's inexcusable. You have no excuse. I think it's just because of the fact that like you touched it. But I, I'm clinging to the fact that like a, a something just rubbed right off of it, like a signature rubbing right off, and maybe that is unfair. Um, yeah, I don't think it's completely unfair. I think we can feel bad that this happened to them, but that doesn't mean that it's not a situation of where you thinking. Yeah, but then you you bring in the fact that it's a small museum and that it is being primarily run by volunteers, probably because that's what happens in small museums, and. I mean, like, this is just a moment of, like, brutal transparency from someone who works in a museum, and I've, we've had a lot of volunteers in the past working in our collections department when there wasn't a whole lot of oversight, and you can visibly see when those periods were because the work isn't as good, and it's not because volunteers aren't good, it's just that they're well-intentioned, but not always well-managed. And so I guess I just, I should should not be so like, how dare you? As a volunteer manager, I agree (laughs) that volunteers should be managed um, and that under management volunteers can do great things. And without management, they run amok and try to run the museum. But I also think that this being a small museum that was raising money primarily from their community, like if you're raising money from your neighbor, you should be careful with how you're spending that money because it's not like you're getting it from a large donor and you're in Hartford, Connecticut and 
you know, they maybe live three hours away from the museum. Like this is your community's museum that your community is raising money for. And so I just, like, I would feel a lot of pressure to make sure what we're buying is real. The only other thought that I have is since Truce was not, like, he was well-known and, like, something to be proud of for the town, but he wasn't, like, a major artist, so they may have not thought that, you know, he would be forged because he's not going to bring in the millions of dollars for a Brewster chair. So the thought that people are out there forging him may have not even occurred to them because mm. it's not a high value market. Okay, should we wrap up? That was just like a sad, it was such a sad note. Those poor volunteers, that poor yeah. museum. I take back being like, I don't feel sorry. I feel sorry. <laughs> I feel... I didn't feel sorry for them when I wrote the script and I thought it was really funny that their collection was 60% fake. But now I do feel really bad for them. But then you think about like little old Irma who gave $50 to the museum and was like, oh, buy a nice painting, sweetie. And they bought a fake. As That's we, depressing. As we get closer and closer in my bedtime, I'm getting more and more sentimental. <laughs> no. All right, so in conclusion, we have poor small museums buying many, many fates. Our new personal hero creating a Brewster chair from his chair smoker and sticking it to the man, AKA antiques dealers in a Gilmore Girls stall or hollow Miss Lane Kim's mom's antique store type of way. And then we have a man named Wolfgang yeah. who is living peacefully with his wife slash partner in crime next to a lake in Switzerland. Beautiful. Amen. They all get floppy disks of the podcast. <laughs> Except for okay. the small museum in France because I think it'd just be hurtful for them. Can we say goodbye and then I'm going to stop recording? Uh, bye to bye. all our Armandi hotties. Hey now. Sleep well, y'all. <laughs> Sweet dreams.